Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, are the fiscal headwinds too strong for the Bank of Canada to make rate cuts this week? When will financial relief finally come for Canadians? Plus, the massive Jericho Lands project goes before Council Wednesday. We speak to Squamish First Nation leader, Health Salem, about the controversy around the project and whether it can serve Vancouver's housing needs. Plus, Immigration Minister Mark Miller tells us why it took so long to reduce Canada's international student intake and the potential impact on Canadian schools. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's jump in and focus on interest rates, right? That's right. The Bank of Canada will make its first key interest rate decision of 2024. Tomorrow, inflation has cooled significantly from highs of 8.1% in the summer of 2022, thanks to the bank's rapid interest rate hikes. But while the first year of the central bank's rate tightening saw inflation drop more than 5 percentage points, the rate of annual price hikes has remained largely steady. I think you can see that um, whenever you look at those interest rates, they're usually been in the range of 3 to 4% over the past half year. So will you finally get relief? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, interest rate cuts and the Bank of Canada and what they're thinking uh, for tomorrow is Michael Levy. Michael Levy is, of course, CKNW's business analyst. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jazz. Well, inflation ticked up to about 3.4% in December of 2023, according to Stats Canada. Uh, Gas prices fell less than they did the same, uh, uh, I guess, a month, uh, a year earlier. Uh, We were heading in the right direction. Then, of course, we got this bit of news in December. What impact does this last month's uh, information that we received have in regards to the Bank of Canada's decision-making? They are going to stand pat. They um, are not going to raise rates, obviously, and I think what they're going to do is take some of that hawkish tone out of the comments that they give when they decide on the rates. They're going to go more neutral, but uh, I think rates are going to hold here and hold for a while. Uh, we have a couple of problems. Uh, first, wages are going up, which is quite inflationary, Jazz, because they've got to be built. When wages go up, they've got to be built into prices. Mm-hmm. And we, we have an economy right now that's basically flat. But when you take a look at inflation in the housing market, where people are looking for shelter, that's also extremely inflationary. So you've got to push-pull. But for now, I see the Bank of Canada doing nothing but staying where they are. And that's going to be difficult because uh, we're, not, um, we're, 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 we're not an inviting place for investment here in Canada right now and things have stagnated a little bit and i think as i say the bank will stand pat we're going to have to look to the second half of the year for interest rate cuts so let's just say it's june is june even too early in your mind well yeah it it, it really is i would say possibly in the summer well june is summer so yeah okay possibly june uh, I think the latter part of the year, Jazz, we're going to see rates come down, and they could, by the end of the year, be down by about 1%. But right now, they've just got to stay where they are. But as I say, they're going to take the hawkish tone out of their comments. Hmm. Uh, there's got to be, obviously, there's a lot of pressure on uh, the federal government in regards to an election coming in 2025. But I, in your mind, sort of the latter part of, of 2023, there must have been, in your mind, just too much optimism and hopes that cuts were coming soon, sooner rather than later. And now looks like just based on the December numbers and what you're saying, uh, you can forget about anything in the first six months for sure. Oh, I, I would say absolutely. Uh, Canada is in recession, techni- well, maybe not technically, but we are in recession right now. Growth has really stagnated, Jazz, and um, we, we, we've got a problem with, as I said, inflation uh, as, as far as salaries are concerned and wages. I mean, we, we can just look at it right now with uh, BC Transit. Uh, if those <clears throat> rate increases go through, well, transit fares are going to go up, transit fares are going to go up, and that's inflationary, and you can take a look at wages throughout our sectors here on the lower mainland. Uh, As the wages go up, inflation goes up. So I I think we're in a bit between a rock and a hard place, and uh, right now, uh, inflation is not going to come down anytime soon, and uh, the bank is just going to have to stay where they are. It would be much better for the economy if rates could come off but I'm just afraid they're not going to. I was reading about 45% of mortgages in this country 
uh, come due in 2024 and 2025. Uh, you know, you want obviously them to come down sooner rather than later so people when they go in to negotiate have some flexibility. But what you're telling me here is, you know, if, if, you're, if your mortgage is coming up for renewal right now, you may not be wanting to sort of, uh, you know, a five-year close is not what you want, something short-term because the cuts are coming later this year probably. Uh, absolutely short term, and uh, that, that that again is one of the problems. And you you've you've just said it is that people who are renewing are going to have to put more money towards their mortgages, and that money is money that could and would be spent in the economy. So um, interest rates staying where they are, uh, mortgages staying where they are, is just going to take less and less money going out and being spent and. Uh, we are, as I said, in recession really in Canada, particularly compared to the U.S. Their economy is going great guns, but we have two different countries going right now. So um, I say that we've got to take a breath, and hopefully towards the end of the year they will start cutting rates. My worry is they're going to cut rates because business is so bad that they're going to be forced to cut rates regardless, and that's what I'm also looking at. This is a hard one to answer, but you know I hear it a lot. There's a lot of people out there, and it doesn't always come out in the statistics. It certainly doesn't come out in sometimes the calls from listeners. But there's a lot of people stretching themselves really on the brink, or isn't there, in this country, more than we probably think. I hear it anecdotally through family and friends and, and those that may have invested too much or taken on too much debt. You didn't know this kind of thing was coming three years ago. Uh, I think there's a lot of – I mean, maybe uh, – what kind of sense do you get when you talk among family, friends, acquaintances, your network? I mean, are people hurting as much as we think they are? Yes. Uh, that that answer is yes, and, and disposable income is way way down. People are having to take care of their debt, whether it's the mortgage debt you were just talking about, or whether it's credit card debt where the interest rates have gone up. Uh, people are between a rock and a hard place, and those listening to us today are going to know exactly what we're talking about. Jazz, they are feeling it. And then just go into the grocery store, or just go in to buy something, and you can see particularly in food, uh, that inflation is still right there. And take a look at the housing shortages. shortages. And so prices, like for rentals, are way, way up. Mm-hmm. And that's just eating into budgets where people can't can't make it, number one. And number two, they can't spend. And back again, if you can't spend, then the economy is not going to go up very quick, if at all. Why in your mind, I mean, we're so interconnected with the U.S., why are they doing so well in regards, relatively speaking, in regards to their economy compared to Canada? Well, they've just got, a, first of all, they have uh, an economy which is very significantly better than ours. Uh, one of the main reasons is that businesses now do not feel welcome in Canada like they used to. The taxation here is is quite out of hand. Uh, you'll feel it personally, and businesses feel it corporately. Uh, you take a look at the banks. They're raising taxes on the banks again. Uh, anywhere that they can find it, where in the United States, taxes have stayed pretty level. As a matter of fact, they've stayed very level. So people aren't feeling that extra bite. And I think the U.S. interest rates are going to come down probably before the Canadian rates. But there is just no comparison right now. The U.S. have got their act together. Actually, politically, Biden is uh, um, taking a lot of credit for what's going on. And people are looking at that and saying, yeah, we've got it pretty good. Yeah, I and mean, that's the, what I find interesting. I mean, I know there's differences in the economy, but in some ways we're so interconnected, you know, you, you don't expect it to be sort of worlds apart, but it seems like it is, and it feels like it is, that's for sure. Michael, as always, thank you for your time. Hopefully some good news later this year, but certainly uh, I think most people would agree with you that uh, don't expect any uh, cuts tomorrow, that's for sure. Thanks so much. Okay, Jazz, thank you. Tomorrow marks the latest step in the years-long planning process for the 13,000-home Jericho Lands development with city staff seeking council approval for the next phases of planning and technical studies. When I say 13,000 homes, that's exactly what I said. That's 24,000 people. That's a small town at the end of the day. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of conversation in and around that development. Some critics have opposed uh, the development itself, saying the density is too high. 
that more testing uh, needs to be done, more reports uh, need to be written in regards to groundwater monitoring, other issues. Others have said it's the density itself, 49-story high buildings, not all of them, of course, but some, and that's greater than some have argued than the city of Hong Kong. Lots of rhetoric, lots of conversation around this issue, and of course, this project is being developed by um, is a joint uh, venture with MST Partnership with the Canada Loans Company, MST, standing for Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Joining me now to talk about uh, the Jericho Lands is Hal Salem. He's a Squamish Nation Council Chair. Hal Salem, as always, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, first and foremost, uh, going into this conversation tomorrow at City Hall, what are you expecting? Uh, I'm expecting a very detailed sort of overview and analysis that will come from the joint teams that were um, shepherding this project. You know, it was a unique process where the city of Vancouver and the MSC Nations collaborated uh, in this development sort of process. Mostly in the history of Vancouver, you know, usually the city is leading on big area plans and developers sort of follow into that after and are consulted. But this was a very unique approach at a government-to-government level, so there'll be a lot of information shared. Um, and I think that'll be a very monumental day for Vancouver to be able to move forward on one of the very few types of developments happening in the world where Indigenous uh, communities are at the forefront of shaping the future of their own city. So I think it's going to be an exciting day. Um, What do you say to the critics that say, look, uh, there's just too much density here? They've referred to, as I said, these 49-story high towers, not all of them, as uh, as I've said, but, you know, these uh, these towers are going to give you some great views, which means international buyers potentially uh, uh, that can afford something like that, not something that would fit the budget of local buyers. What do you say to that argument, first and foremost, that it's just too big? Critics have gone off, as I said, have called it, uh, you know, kind of like compared it to Hong Kong. Some have called it uh, Metro Town by the Sea. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I think the criticism I would classify into two categories. I think there's a lot of good faith criticism and concern that's been expressed by people that I think is totally valid and needs to be addressed. And then I think there's also been a lot of bad faith criticism from, I think, motivated actors um, who might live in the area and have a vested interest in maintaining a low-dense neighborhood. Um, the, The biggest I think thing to, to, to explain is, you know, the level of density that we're talking about here is bringing uh, homes to our city that is desperately needed. And when it comes to not just the homes themselves, it's also the type of home. So what's really important for everybody to understand is that th- these are lands that the nations reacquired in 2015. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've come up with a development plan that sees them being sold as strata leasehold, not uh, uh, just sold off to the market. So these will be retained. Every unit will be retained by the nations. And after 99 years, those condos would come back to the nations and we could potentially redevelop those lands again, renovate them and sell them again. But they actually get retained by the nation. So a good example is UDC, uh, where there's a number of leasehold properties. So when it comes to this sort of boogeyman around, um, around uh, you know, foreign buyers, these are going to be long-term leasehold units. Um, we generally don't see foreign buyers wanting to buy because if they are, they're more interested in sort of um, making a, a capital gains off these properties as an investment. So these will be homes for uh, people that need to live and want to live in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say uh, to some who say, look, the project itself has almost doubled uh, has almost doubled in regards to the proposed density since 2021. Was there a, a, a conscious effort to say, wait a minute here, we've got this land, let's rethink this and really focus on density? And yes, it may be controversial, but this is what we want to go with initially and with our conversation with the city? Yeah, that's a good, a good question. The narrative or the story is basically um, as the city of Vancouver and the region started to look at transit investments and really advocating for uh, the UBC extension, uh, th- it became a question for the nations. So these 90 acres in West Point Grey are one of the most un- undeveloped areas in Vancouver, but also one of the most undeveloped areas in, in West Point Grey. So when the conversation around UBC extension came up, there was a conscious effort of the leadership of the nations to say, wait a second, here's a golden opportunity to bring um, transit infrastructure through our site. And if we can, um, if that works feasibly to bring transit um, SkyTrain to our site, then it makes sense to maximize the investment that senior levels of government are making into that kind of transportation infrastructure um, by bringing a lot of housing near those uh, stations. And so the density level changed as a direct result of the nations leading an advocacy effort to have a SkyTrain station included within the development. And of course, 
you know, we see lots of areas of Metro Vancouver where some municipalities have done a lot of density around transit, which makes a lot of sense. You know, it reduces your car dependence, uh, reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and also bring, uh, builds a more livable community. So the density question really came from us leading the conversation around transportation um, into the site. I don't want to get too technical here, but one of the key things I keep hearing about is this hydrogeological study um, needing to be done to assess the, I guess, the subsurface formation and especially groundwater conditions. Um, and I guess at its core is this sort of underlying uh, uh, need to know whether or not that area, uh, through its infrastructure and community amenities, traffic, all those types of things, that it can actually absorb that many people. Uh, do you think in this presentation, in this conversation, the underlying issues that the critics have really focused upon is these hydrogeological study and just a core need that infrastructure that you can actually uh, uh, handle this type of density? Yeah, no, I think um, it is a very interesting question. I think that will be addressed tomorrow in the staff presentation. But I think what's important for the public to understand is that when there are these sort of large scale area plan planning projects, um, this is it's a policy statement. So it's the first step to many steps of development. Um, the projects still have to be phased. There's phasing that's involved in each of the part parcels. Mm-hmm. And then within each phasing, there's also a rezoning application for each um, area within that phase. And then eventually you get to a development uh, development permit application and then eventually construction. So generally, um, the past practice and the normal practice is that there would be a policy statement that sets out the broad goals and objectives. And as we go through that, there will be more technical studies that are now um, done to be able to address the feasibility of certain aspects of that. That's that's very standard and common for for cities and for the city of Vancouver. So this sort of recall or demand that everything be paused in order for the study to be done is, I think, a bit of a red herring when that's not normally what's needed. And there is a way to be able to adjust the development as we go through each of the phasing. You know, if, if the study comes back and says, actually, it would be better to reduce some of the density on this side for this or that reason, so be it. We'll, we can make, make those changes and then the density could be moved into other parts of the development. Now, Salem, I'm curious. Uh, this is a massive project. Uh, yourself, um, the, part of the MST partnership, I mean, is, is it overwhelming at times just in regards to taking something like this on? You require a lot of capacity to build. You need the right people to be part of this uh, conversation and to sort of work its way through the whole planning process and actually start building. I mean, give me a sense of just trying to build capacity in, in, in not only your community, but uh, Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh as well to be taking part in all of this. No, it's, it, it is a huge undertaking. And, and this project in particular is, you know, the largest of all of the projects that, you know, our nations are working on. It's the largest Indigenous-led, you know, real estate project in the country, if not the world. And there's so many uh, moving pieces and so many different professionals that are involved on different stages. And, you know, we see a huge need to expand and grow our capacity. And, you know, we're taking steps to do that and we need to do more. We need to create more partnerships with institutions, you know, educational institutions, with the private sector to figure out that that sort of workforce strategy. How do we get people from, you know, coming out of university into the pathway to taking on senior positions at one point? And I think that's all the nations really are committed and want to see our people, you know, excelling and um, taking on those roles. And it, it's a it's a gargantuan challenge. I think it's a challenge that we're seeing across the board in a number of areas of how do we as a society ensure that we are um, creating the types of careers and uh, workforce to be able to serve our society. And we're seeing challenges of this in teachers and healthcare, et cetera. Uh, and and it, it happens for us at a, at a much smaller level, too. Uh- this is going to take a while in regards to the planning process. It's a it's a massive project. It will take a lot of years. When do you envision having shovels in the ground? Good question. So in the general timeline of development in Vancouver, you kind of get through a policy statement like this. It might take uh, about a year to get through uh, the rezoning application for one of the parcels, and then it might take another year and a half, year to year and a half for a development permit. And then from that point, you're getting into contracting and then eventually shovels in the ground. So that's still a two to three, three and a half year process before the first building could even be constructed. And of course, it takes a couple of years just to build infrastructure for that development as well before you see even cranes in the, in the sky kind of thing. So 
it's a long, long process, especially when we've been at it since uh, 2015. So, and how long do you think this will take for you to fully build out that neighborhood? Any sense of just uh, the, the timeline there? This, is this a, a 20-year process, 25 years or less? There's sort of a range. Um, I think our goal is around 25 years to build out all the mm-hmm. units, um, although that could end up being closer to 30 or it could be a little bit less. It depends on a number of circumstances. One of them is just market conditions. Um, does it make sense to sort of you know bring in a certain amount of units at a certain time? Um, there's also delays that can happen in construction because of supply chain issues or other economic issues. So mm-hmm. I think we're looking at it around a 25-year period. I think if we could um, make that um, quicker, we would like to because obviously Vancouver has a huge housing need and the revenue generated off this project is going to support directly into community to support you know, healthcare centers and elders, community centers, affordable housing, um, you know, new parks and recreation facilities for the three nations. So mm-hmm. the sooner we can build it, the better. Uh, and do you think you have the right mix in regards to uh, rental housing, lower income housing? I think 30% of it is rental housing, 20% is uh, allocated for lower income social housing, and I think 10% is uh, purpose built rental housing. Uh, which I think is being allocated for below market to or moderate incomes. Uh, do you think this is something you can actually deliver upon? Yeah. So what's really exciting about it is that generally the city of Vancouver requires about a 20% um, affordable housing requirement when in developments. That's their general policy. What we were able to achieve on this site, largely because of the First Nations involvement and because of the level of density, is that we we found that we could actually push the level of inclusionary zoning a little bit higher and closer to 30 or 33%. And, and that doesn't normally happen. So that's an additional value that the nations have um, um, added into uh, the development. And so I think that's a really exciting aspect. That means a lot of you know social housing that will be managed by a nonprofit um, delivering affordable housing for Indigenous families and, and in particularly Muslim, Squamish, and Soviet families potentially, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of rental that is needed. And, and of course, there is the market component and the market condos, and there's been some criticisms around that. that you know, why, why aren't we doing 50 or 60 or 70% rental? Well, there's a lot of costs involved. You know, there's a the land cost um, that we negotiated to purchase the land. Um, there's all the development costs and there's all the carrying costs if we're trying to pay off those things. And also just the urgent needs. You know, we, we need to build um, a lot of community amenities within our community and, and a, a condo type development um, sees the return on investment sooner than, say, a rental project. And we're doing rental projects in other places that are going to generate that long term passive revenue. So it's a broad strategy. So in your mind, the criticism that, that only 20 percent is being allocated for lower lower income social housing and only a quarter of the remaining 10% is purpose-built rental housing. That, that You think you know that's the right mix in regards to all the other infrastructure and everything else you're trying to build out. Essentially, you're building a new neighborhood that the criticism in your mind is unfair to say you should have, uh, you should be pro- providing you know, sort of a broader range of rental housing for Vancouver, right? That you're not doing enough with this massive project. You don't buy that argument. Well, I think um, what I'm often challenged by is the not just the criticisms themselves, but also the critiques in, the, in broader context. And I think that this project has faced a certain kind of campaign, uh, mobilized campaign and funded campaign that is unusual for the type of development that happens in Vancouver. I think we've seen a much more forceful opposition from an organized group on this project that's Indigenous-led mm-hmm. than we've seen on other projects that are non-Indigenous-led. You know, there's lots of, of large area plans that happen where, where market development happens and the same level of accusations around, well, why isn't there more affordable housing? Well, we don't hear the same people or the same criticism on all these other projects that are happening throughout the city. It's only on our project. So there's something about this unique project that I think brings out certain criticism. Um, and I think there's also just an element of because it's Indigenous-led, um, there sort of seems to be this double standard. And, when, and why do you think that is? Is it just you, you think it's just racism? Is it, is it uh, the size of this project and the impact it have? I, I, I just wanted to flesh that out a little bit. What yeah. do, why do you think the criticism is what you think it is? So there's there's some really interesting things about the site, right? So West Point Gray has been a declining neighborhood for for a couple of decades in terms of, of population uh, in certain parts of it. And we see that through the school um, attend uh, school um, number of students at some of the elementary schools and high schools in the area. The the street that lines the Jericho property, so there's a, a, a few dozen uh, single detached homes, um, very large lots, very large houses that line 
uh, the southern border of our property. The combined value of those uh, properties uh, in, in 2021 was was uh, almost 300 million um, in terms of property value. I mean, it's an average of like four million dollars per home. And these are the people that are saying that we're not building enough affordable homes in our development when we're going to be marketing condos that might come in, you know, between 600 to 900,000 and social housing units for indigenous people and rental housing for um, renters. So, you know, there's, there's, I think um, a lot of, of, of feelings around the neighborhood changing in a particular way, but of course, you know, we've focused development in certain areas in the city and this is the first time that we're actually bringing, you know, the beauty of the West side to a broader spectrum of incomes and households and community members. You know, it's not going to be an exclusive neighborhood the way it's been for the last 50 years. And we're going to see a greater diversity of incomes, families, um, you know, backgrounds, everything else in an, in an indigenous way, which I think is really exciting. Now, Salem, we've run out of time. Always enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Well, after a tumultuous movie year marred by strikes and work stoppages, the Academy Awards showered nominations today on Christopher Nolan's blockbuster biopic Oppenheimer, which came away with 13 leading nominations for the Oscars. Nolan's three-hour opus, viewed as the Best Picture frontrunner, received nods for Best Picture. Uh, Nolan as Best Director. Acting nominations were also uh, recognized for Robert Downey Jr. and Emily Blunt, and multiple honors for the uh, J. J. Robert Oppenheimer drama, of course. There were also some surprises as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's Oscar nominations is Rick Forchuk. He's TV Week magazine columnist and a CKNW contributor. Rick, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, so the announcement today of the nominees, was there anything surprising for you? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised that Greta Gerwig and that Margot Robbie got opted out of uh, Barbie. You know, Barbie got Best Picture nomination, but uh, look at Greta Gerwig. She is the director of a movie nominated for Best Picture and one that made almost a billion dollars at the box office in just a few weeks, and they passed her over. And uh, I'm not a big fan of the Barbie movie, but I am really surprised that uh, someone as talented as Gerwig would have gotten missed. So that was a big surprise to me. Also a little surprised, same movie, Barbie, that we would see a Best Supporting Actor uh, a nomination uh, for our, our very own Canadian guy uh, who uh, played Ken. And I'm just pretty surprised that uh, that went that way as well. Um, I, I didn't think he did, uh, you know, I didn't do a bad job, but it was a small role, not very much to it. So that was a bit of a surprise. Everything else, pretty much the same, pretty much exactly according to what one of my best killers of the flower moon, lots of nominations, uh, Oppenheimer, I think the good thing about uh, both uh, Barbie with eight nominations and Oppenheimer with 13 is it gives us, as the New York Times says, an opportunity to consider, continue to say Barbenheimer, yeah. which I just love to do. Yeah. So we can talk about Barbenheimer until the Oscars now. But uh, that's about the only real surprise for me. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue of Ryan Gosling is great for him to get the Best Supporting Actor nod. But uh, I've always find it odd that uh, someone doesn't receive a Best uh, Director nomination but somehow the movie is part of the it doesn't receive a nominee for uh, best picture. Exactly, and uh, normally, uh, traditionally, I guess over most of the years of the Oscars, uh, best picture and best director went hand in hand. Now, over the last five or six years, that has not always been the case, uh, but uh, it should be. Uh, we've got Christopher Nolan, who's got a best director um, Oscar nomination here, and he's also got a best picture nomination for Oppenheimer. And uh, I think that he will probably, that's where you can make predictions, but I've got a good, uh, good feeling that he will probably get both of those categories. He's never won a Best Picture uh, nomination, and um, he's been nominated, rather, but he hasn't won the Oscar for it. So I think that that's going to happen for him. Uh, the other thing, I guess, you asked about surprises. I'm, I'm surprised about Maestro. Now, Maestro was a Netflix movie. It's got a nomination for Best Actor for Bradley Cooper. It's got a nomination for Best Picture. And this is a movie that, uh, other than a few small um, weekend dates in American theaters, really didn't show up in movie theaters. It uh, was right out of the gate onto Netflix. So 
Uh, Cooper was great in this. I don't uh, don't mean to demean him in any way, shape, or form, uh, but um, the movie didn't have the kind of presence, a big budget presence, that we get with a big screen film. So that surprised me a little bit, but um, that's all good because, again, it gives us lots of things about which to speak, and um, it gives us some people to follow that we care about. So uh, that's about the way I see it right now. Yeah, a lot of the streaming services have a tendency to make these movies, uh, and the directors and artists do still want to see a traditional uh, movie release, whether it be a small uh, a set of, uh, of, uh, of theaters in, let's say, L.A. and New York, or a minimum run for a month or six weeks, and then it's on streaming right away. That seems to be part of the trend as well, that hey, let's make a few bucks off uh, the, the box office that perhaps may pay for some of the production, and then we run it on streaming as quickly as possible. And now they end up as Oscar nominees. Yeah, well, that's right. And another one that's like that is Nyad, nominated for Best Picture. Uh, this is a Netflix production also. Annette Benning nominated for Best Actress. Jodie Foster nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And once again, that's a movie that uh, didn't show up in theaters at all, uh, went right to streaming. And it was a, a terrific film. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. I uh, got a real sense of size and scope with it. Uh, the other, not surprise, but uh, it's about time sort of moment, is Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, the first indigenous person to be nominated for an Oscar. And she just made that movie. She just made that picture. Now, for those who have seen Killers of the Flower Moon, you know who she is. She's a central character, an indigenous woman. If you read the book, you'll know that she has a very, very small role, at least her, her character has a very small role. Uh, the book is quite different. Its focus was really on the Texas Rangers and uh, on all of the FBI and law enforcement people who showed up to right the wrongs that were done. Uh, the movie really focused on the people, and she just shines in this one. I wish her all the best for an Oscar for that one, Jazz. Hmm. Some of the movies you're mentioning are Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, uh, do you think part of the challenge Barbie had was it, it was just too mainstream and perhaps was some, to, to some film snobs a bit too pedestrian? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You put your finger right on it because for many, many, many years, the Academy has for some reason been kind of anti-big movie. So if a movie had a big budget and made a lot of money at the box office and got a lot of people talking about it, it usually wasn't Oscar material. Not always, but generally speaking, that's the way. And I think that's kind of what happened to Barbie. Uh, you're right. It's, uh, it's too, too much um, in the moment, too much a big picture, and not enough artistic value in the eyes of some of the people in the Academy. Uh, I, I don't totally agree, but uh, I think that's the way it is. I think you're absolutely right with your, your premise there. Um, you've mentioned Netflix a couple of times in our conversation. Killers of the Flower Moon, I believe, is on Apple. Um, yes. What does this mean for the actual box office, the traditional movie theater, when, yes, these are playing in theaters, but in some case, minimally, uh, while well, others have done very well at the box office, but it seems to me things are... Uh, heading more towards, or at least the direction seems to be towards streaming, and the box office, well, we still go to the movies, uh, is not what it once used to be, and this is once again a a reminder of that trend, that uh, we still go to the movies, but certainly not as much as we once did. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, Jazz, as they tweak the business model and try different things. Killers of the Flower Moon, yes, it's from Apple. Apple Studios and Apple Production, but it didn't wind up streaming on Apple Plus for several weeks. In fact, about two and a half months, I think, before it wound up on our television screens. So even though it came from what is designated as a streaming service, it was all the way a big screen, big theater movie. And um, so we have both. We have those films that didn't show up in theaters to speak of. We have those films that were made by streaming services, but weren't made to stream initially. They were made to be big theatrical features. So it, it's a constant tweaking of the business model. And it's, uh, I, I'm sure that there are people sitting around boardrooms in various parts of the entertainment business this very moment saying, what do we have to change to get this thing better? What do we have to do to make this better? Here we have Netflix getting Best Picture nominations, Best Actor nominations, and we've got our big screen movies that had twice the budget, and they didn't get anything. So it's an interesting premise and a continually changing sort of tide. 
on the on the world of the of movies and the way they're going. It's very interesting, and it intrigues me every day, and it changes every day, Jazz. I'm going to assume you still prefer to go to watch movies at the theater. I know you love streaming, but you're still a guy who grab a popcorn uh, bag and uh, rather watch it at the big on the big screen. I do, because most movies, not all, but most movies are made to be seen that way. They're made to be seen in a dark room on a huge screen with a big sound system and a bunch of like-minded people. So I still do like to go to the theaters. However, as I've said to you before, uh, the behavior of people in movie theaters seems to be going downhill. And that is the one downside of seeing a movie in the theater. People come in late. They disrupt folks. They turn on the lights on their iPhones to find their seat. Uh, They look at their email and their texting as they're watching the movie, and these things light up all over the place like stars in a constellation. That sort of thing is really off-putting for me. However, not so much so that I don't want to go and see it in the theater, Jazz. Oh, there you go. Rick, as always, thank you. My pleasure. We're joined by show contributor Jerry Mir Judson. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Oscars. We were just speaking to Rick Forchuk. Uh, but, uh, and the big issue and big story so far coming out of the Oscars is that Margot Robbie didn't uh, receive a Best Actress nomination. And, uh, and she was the one who drove this movie behind the scenes as a producer. And, of course, Greta Gerwig didn't get a nomination for Best Director, although uh, the movie is uh, rec- uh, did receive a nomination for Best Picture. Uh, Jerry, your thoughts on all this? <laughs> it sucks. I don't know. I think that it is wild and I, it's okay. My thing, I'm going to try to put the, I'm trying to articulate uh-huh. this well, is that Oscar nominations are not some finite resource that we pluck from the earth. They're a made up thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why we couldn't just give one to Greta Gerwig at the very least. Because for, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's quote unquote about film, which whoever decides that, whatever powers that be decide what the film is about. But it did create a cultural moment and i think that i don't know it just smacks of misogyny that like okay well ryan gosling got one margot robbie nope mm. greta gerwig pound sand america ferrera did get a supporting actress nod there was costume design it's nominated for best picture best song times two is yeah. so i mean odds are it'll win best song for one of them but i i just i don't know i i don't know if i was hoping for a sweep but i i would i hoped that greta gerwig would have gotten her flowers but i guess not no and uh, you know uh, it, it's weird because there's so many other nominations they received i think it was eight they received yeah and lots. yet the like i said the person behind the scenes who pushed this it really was margot robbie in mm-hmm. many ways and then i said the director as well who's did a fa- fabulous job even nevertheless, it's nominated for best film. I still don't think it's going to win, only no, because no, no, no. it's too mainstream, and for the film snob, probably viewed as too pedestrian compared to Oppenheimer and many of these other ones. Uh, film snob. Oh, Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie is you know too is really avant garde, but it was about historic. as a d- dead white guy, so I guess. But you know, but but I think it 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 made a lot of dollars just because it was part of that Barbenheimer. It did. Uh, I Barbenheimered. I saw Barbie and Oppenheimer same day. Yeah. I liked them equally, but I do think that I just I don't know. It just seems it seems pointed, and especially given the content of the movie <laughs> and the cultural moment that it was about i don't know it was it was it was it was sad and i uh, I, I think the bigger challenge that they have i mean this is going to continue and, and i i really don't have much to offer on this one because they did all the supporting actors uh got nominees and, and for costume and everything else and it was when something Better. but the big but the big stuff you're right um but i just think the bigger challenge movies have these days is we're not going to movies that often that's the bigger challenge. That's true. And movie theaters aren't necessary. It's, it's, you have to really hunt to find things that aren't, I guess, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Like I saw that Saltburn got snubbed. And lots of people I know haven't seen Saltburn, but it got so many Golden Globe nominations. It got a bunch of CCMA nominations. It was my favorite movie that I saw this year. But hmm. nothing. No love for Saltburn at the Oscars. Very I, sad. I, I think it's just a different era. Like You're right. But I, it goes back to movies were a collective cultural experience. Now we're like, we don't I, I, I don't go... I saw them watch stuff on Netflix. Even these movies that are being produced by Netflix, they'll put them out in the theater for like a week so they can potentially be nominated or for a month or whatever. Limited release, just enough to be nominated for just the Oscars. Bump. Yeah, just yeah. get the bump. And then and then it's on, uh, on, on streaming. streaming. Like Children of the Flower Moon, whatever it's called. I haven't oh, seen yes. it yet. I haven't That's either. That's on Apple. 
Right. So right. I guess so. I got to pay for subscription service and I could I didn't get there for the two and a half seconds it was in the theaters. <laughs> exactly. Cheapers creepers. I well, miss collective cultural moments. But yeah, you're right. We don't. There is no monoculture anymore. No. And that's what I'm saying. I know. I miss it. It is. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced new limits to the international student program, including a 35% reduction in the number of study permits uh, it issues uh, this year. Uh, That announcement, of course, was made yesterday. The cap comes in response to a recent surge in international students and concerns that some institutions are relying on international enrollment to boost revenues without offering necessary housing or a quality education. Joining me now to talk about the CAP and our international student program is Mark Miller, Canada's Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. Minister Miller, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Why the decision now uh, to put a cap on international students? Well, I'd, I'd say a couple things. I, You know, we were looking at what the rapid increase, sort of hockey stick, uh, increase in volume that we had seen over the last uh, very short period of time. And it, frankly, it was alarming. Uh, you know, I took, uh, and you may recall that I took a number of measures in the early fall, one to bolster the, bolster the solvency requirements for students coming to Canada. Obviously, it costs money to, to live here, uh, increasingly so. But also to stem some of the worst fraud cases, verifying offer letters, um, but also warning provinces uh, who have a good share of this jurisdiction over uh, post-secondary education generally, but post-secondary education in this case, um, that something needed to be done about this uh, bit of a runaway train. Uh, Our department over the course of the last little while has rejected about 40% of of applications that have come in, Um, but clearly the volume was something that was disconcerting. It was time to put that to an end. Now, we know the carry-on impacts that, that volume has had on uh, on housing, on education, on potential, on, on healthcare. Uh, we also know the the underfunding that a number of these post-secondary educations have had, uh, education institutions have had over um, over a significant period of time, uh, depending on the province. So very under, very 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 aware of the dynamic that exists, as well as the fact that you know in this. I know it sounds a bit crass, but you got to follow the money. International students are sometimes charged three, four, five times what a domestic student is charged. In that context, it has become very lucrative to go abroad uh, and 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 recruit um, talent to come here. Uh, some very bright talent, but also there's been some actors that have taken advantage of the situation, and um, there's been some institutions that have popped up that really shouldn't uh, shouldn't exist. And that's uh, that optic that we were looking at and seeing the rapid growth. It was time to do something. So what we did is we we effected a 35% reduction in uh, incoming visas, and in the spirit of fairness, spread it around the provinces uh, by by population. There are some provinces where this uh, where there are more students than there are in others, and we didn't feel it was fair uh, to to penalize other provinces for uh, this 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 national cap. So some provinces, at the end of the day, will have to do more reductions like in, in British Columbia and Ontario than others, uh, for example, in Alberta, Saskatchewan, or, or Quebec for that matter. Um, but it's only in, in that spirit of fairness. Now, um, there's a lot of responsibility here on on behalf of the provinces to shore up the quality of uh, the student experience, um, whether it's to ensure that they have the proper educational curriculum in some cases, but also proper housing supports. And so that's work that needs to that actually needs to be done and, and frankly in bc um sorry to go on but it's very important my my colleague selena robinson has been very open in saying that the work uh, that they are doing in bc is uh is next to complete and they will be rolling something out in um, in the near term so i'm encouraged that what i'm seeing in some provinces but there's, uh, there's some work to do to, to shore up a system that has gotten a little bit out of control. Minister, you referred to this as a, a system that's gotten out of control. You referred to it as a runaway train. Why did this tr- this program turn into a runaway train under federal liberal leadership? Ultimately, your, uh, your government, uh, your party has been running the government, and this has all gotten out of control while the liberals have run things. Why has this gotten out of control? Yeah, look, uh, fair, fair question. There... This has largely been, 
for about 40 years, something that we have never kept. Um, the federal government has an important role in issuing visas, but there also has been an important role in the provinces exercising their role in, in designating learning institutions, regulating those institutions, um, issuing applications, and, and frankly, we, uh, we trusted them. It worked largely uh, pretty well for, the, for a number of decades. It's really over the last few years that there's been uh, just a real spike. Um, and it isn't to say that um, we haven't taken a number of measures. Obviously, during COVID, we shut the taps off completely, uh, and that created a huge impact on on institutions that um, saw a huge revenue source just uh, end from, 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 from one day to the other. Um, coming out of COVID, uh, the programs were, uh, were adapted to post-COVID circumstances, and we saw a significant rise. Um, it, what, it became alarming, and it obviously became clear to us that um, in certain jurisdictions it was time to act and make sure that the federal government was being a little more forceful in its role and making sure that um, this was an industry that was properly regulated. Uh, the international student experience is one that is very valuable, and it, I don't want to pick on individual students because people come here, um, some of them are the best and the brightest, some of them go home and uh, are soft diplomats for Canada, some stay here and become permanent residents, but it did create a, a very lucrative ecosystem that I believe has been uh, subject to abuse uh, and has undermined the the integrity of the system. And so Minister, this is an important I, I, step, yeah, and I, I think it's one that's been a long time coming. Yeah, I, but I, I just want to clarify here. I mean, ultimately, immigration is a federal responsibility, number one. Uh, and certainly what we've read over the last few weeks, there were internal memos basically saying that, you know, letting this many students in, a significant amount in, will impact uh, housing will impact daily life in, in, in our major cities and in, in, in particularly provinces like Ontario and British Columbia. Those are internal uh, you know, warnings that were given to the government. But I, I don't understand. You're saying the provinces have a role to play. I understand in regards to licensing post-secondary institutions, but ultimately immigration is a federal responsibility. Why were those warnings not heeded earlier uh, so we would never have gotten to the point that we have gotten into today? Well, you know, well, it's a good point. At the you know at, at the border, at the issuance of visas, um, clear clear role and responsibility of the federal government. Immigration is a, is, a, is a shared responsibility, particularly in the services that are provided. Um, if you look at this uh, from, as I said, from a pure financial perspective, the federal government is the only player in here not making a single cent. Uh, some provinces take money off this. The obviously the institutions themselves charge very large tuition fees. Um, and there is some responsibility and some blame to go around. Uh, and that's something I think we need to have a very serious conversation about. Um, post-secondary education in particular has been a field where there has been significant underfunding throughout the years. And those institutions have reacted accordingly and have taken advantage of um, a system that has uh, trusted designated learning institutions, the role of provinces to regulate those institutions. Um, and and benefit from uh, an international visa student visa system that um, that has issued a great number of visas to, in essence, plug that uh, consistent underfunding. Um, so today and this week, we've assumed our responsibility. We've done so progressively over the last three or four months, uh, and it's time to to really rein in something that um, is important for us to, as a country, uh, and as country that prides itself on the value of post-secondary education um, work together with provinces and institutions to make sure we have a quality system. Minister, uh, today the Council of Ontario University says the newly announced caps uh, on international students uh, is unfairly punishing responsible institutions alongside bad actors uh, in the post-secondary sector. Uh, and uh, Steve Orsini, who's the president and CEO of that organization, said many universities are already in a perilous financial situation and capping international student enrollment will add more strain on the budget. Uh, today we had also the president of Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops uh, uh, also uh, expressing those concerns, not knowing what impact this would completely have on their institution, and that's a public institution. They have about 4,600 international students on campus for this winter semester. That's nearly half of the on-campus student population. Once again, speaking to the rise of the amount of international students, and we're not even talking about private schools uh, that are charging, as you say, exorbitant amounts. Um, are you comfortable with some public institutions and perhaps much more private institutions, private colleges, actually going under to clean out this system? Uh, 
you know, I think there's certainly a number of private institutions that um, that 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 need to say goodbye to this business business model and need to be shut down. When it comes to the public institutions, um, no one is uh, all that innocent here, and I think there needs to be a discussion about what that proper ratio of international students is, what the proper student experience should be in a country like Canada, um, assuring that people have proper housing, particularly for the price they're paying for that education. Um, so absolutely, I am concerned. I am confident, and given the exponential jump in those visas, um, I'm confident that these can be properly reapportioned to make sure that uh, bad actors are paying the price and good actors perhaps can be rewarded in, in some circumstances. That's going to require some serious sit-downs uh, with uh, provincial officials in particular as they look to allocate this in a way that ensures the quality uh, of the educational experience. Uh, the tools that the federal government have uh, are pretty rough. Uh, we can turn off taps. Uh, we can make things provincial and 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 work with the numbers. Um, but the proper surgical instruments do lie with the provinces, and we actually expect them to use them. Uh, we have exempted in certain cases uh, master's programs and 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 PhD programs from the cap and primary and secondary um, education for international students. That seemed like a fair thing to do, uh, but in between that, there is some work to do to, which is the bulk of those international student visas. There's some work to do to to separate the wheat from the chaff, and that I think is the work that I initiated early in the fall in creating a recognized institution model where institutions would, the better institutions would work with us so that they would get priority treatment on on some of their visas, and so there are there is a lot of work that's underway. And when it comes to, to British Columbia, I'm quite confident that there, uh, there's real effort being made by my provincial colleagues uh, in actually addressing a number of these issues. Minister, my final question to you. Do you think the bigger question here beyond what's happened now, the bigger question is that we've relied on international students for the last 20, 30 years, that we've been sleepwalking to this situation where we are heavily reliant on international students to subsidize our public education system in regards to programs that we've been underfunding post-secondary institutions, that in these various institutions have become addicted to those international dollars. I'm not talking about the challenges today and now. I'm even talking about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, that we somehow have fallen into this funding model where the international student is prized simply because they subsidize the local education system. And it's time we perhaps re um, certainly look at our education funding system, provincially and federally, uh, once again, because that at its core has been part of the problem, is that we've sleepwalked our way to this problem. Yeah, and I'd say that that is, you know, it is a generalization, but I think it is a rather accurate one about the state of affairs of post-secondary education and its underfunding in Canada, some provinces, some more, some less. Um, I think everyone in Canada is entitled, uh, if they get the grades, they should be able to go to and have a quality post-secondary education and have a great job that comes with it. That's the reality of being in one of the best countries, the best country in, in the world. That isn't the case today. And um, in parts, people have plugged the holes with international students. Um, yes, it's happened throughout the years, but we've really seen exponential growth in the last little while, as well as some really unhealthy relationships pop up, um, not only with respect to you know, the public institutions that largely aren't to blame, but uh, really private or private-public arrangements that have seen sort of sham establishments uh, in, 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 you know, in essentially on street corners that are offering um, things tantamount to fake commerce degrees so that people can, can drive uh, Ubers and, and perhaps access a backdoor entry to Canada. And so this is also about not only the integrity of the international student visa system itself, but um, the integrity of the immigration system. Not everyone is entitled to come to this country. Not everyone is entitled to stay here once they are and become a permanent resident uh, and, and then um, a Canadian. But it isn't um, that 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 promise and that false hope has been entertained by some false actors abroad. And I do worry about the people that are uh, taken advantage of because if they are here, they're entitled to to their dignity and respect. Um, but in some cases, there are some people that have been taken advantage of. Minister, uh, always enjoy our conversation. Appreciate you making time for us and our audience today. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks. Thanks for having time for me. 
Well, after former President Donald Trump won Iowa in convincing fashion last week, the presidential primary race turns to New Hampshire. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley is the last major Trump alternative standing, and she has staked her campaign on a strong performance in the Granite State. However, early polls indicate that Trump has a healthy lead. Now, both candidates were reaching out to voters in the lead-up to today's vote. Take a listen. Each and every one of you is going to cast the most important vote of your entire life. This is a very, very important vote. When you step into that voting booth, you are going to be uh, signaling that we want crooked Joe Biden, the worst president in the history of our country. We got to get him out. Is Donald Trump mentally fit to be president? I think he's mentally fit, but I think he's declining. And that's the, you know, look, do we really want two 80-year-old candidates running for president? Because the concern I have is look at Joe Biden two years ago. Look at how much he's declined in these two years. What I'm saying is why can't we go and finally get all of these people out of D.C. and go with new generational people? Do they have to stick around this long when we see what a mess the country is in? That was uh, former Governor uh, Nikki Haley. Now, <laughs> she said, do you need two 80-year-olds fighting over who will be president? Well, uh, the results have been coming in, and looks like uh, uh, there has already been at least some folks announcing that we have a winner in New Hampshire. Joining me now is Reggie Cicchini. He's Global News Washington correspondent. He joins us now from the capital of New Hampshire, Concord. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm looking at, at the wire service here. Do we have a winner now in New Hampshire already? It, it would appear that we do have a winner. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, most of the networks, the Associated Press have called him uh, as victorious here. And Nikki Haley spoke just a couple of minutes ago uh, and congratulated Donald Trump on winning New Hampshire. So while she did not kind of you know win this in the way that she wanted to, what we're watching now is the margin. The latest polls had her losing by 20 points. The margins right now have her uh, somewhere possibly 8, 9, or 10 points. If that that's the case that's significant because it gives her a few extra breaths as she makes this walk towards uh, the South Carolina primary. Uh, I'm looking at the results right now. They've just moved ever so slightly. Uh, according to the Associated Press, 25% of votes have been counted. Uh, and right now, 44,000 and some and change for Donald Trump, 37,714 for Nikki Haley. She has 45.5% of the vote. Donald Trump has 536 So as you said, fits into that eight or nine point difference as of this moment, as those results come in. What does this mean for Donald Trump, uh, Reggie? Well, look, it signals bad news, especially if the margins stay as they are or at least kind of fall somewhere between that 9 and 11 percent. It signals uh, that there are people out there that are dissatisfied with Donald Trump as the potential nominee, as the potential uh, person to be thrust up onto the ballot later on this November. And that's because there's a significant number of Haley supporters that I spoke to today and that have been talked to over the last several hours that say if she's not on the ballot in November, that they will vote for Joe Biden. So essentially, these were these kind of poor numbers that Donald Trump is seeing in his victory could spell disaster for him in a general election. Obviously, there's a long time to go before November, but these are the early signals. So do you think Nikki Haley still uh, will be holding on for uh, at least one more primary race? Or do you think this will go all the way to Super Tuesday? Again, I think we need to look at the margins here. If if the votes come in from smaller counties in and around New Hampshire and these start to widen and we see these 14, 15, 16, 17 percent loss margin here, that could spell problems, uh, especially if donors dry up and her fundraising disappears before uh, the next primary uh, at the end of, of February in her home state. If the margins are OK for her, she'll have uh, a bit more money. She'll be able to survive. She'll limp into South Carolina. The question is, will she have money and will she have support beyond? On South Carolina through Super Tuesday, the calendar, uh, rather the map doesn't work in her favor. It gets more conservative uh, and, and, and the support just may not be there. This is a far more populist base that is going to be voting in the months to come in the weeks to come. Uh, and, and, you know, if she's trying to court these moderates, there are far fewer of them in some of these far more conservative states. And the Ron DeSantis vote, Mr. DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, uh, stepped down from the race uh, this weekend. Where did those votes, where, what's the general assumption where those votes went? 
Well, the vast majority of them appear to have gone towards Donald Trump. At least the poll suggested that this morning they bumped Donald Trump up to this kind of 52, 53 percent through Nikki Haley's 38, 39 percent. Uh, it would appear some of them went to Donald Trump. Maybe some of them went to uh, Nikki Haley. It's also worth pointing out Ron DeSantis was still on the ballot here in New Hampshire because he dropped out so late they had already been printed. And we do know that DeSantis has picked up several dozen, if not maybe a couple of hundred votes around the state tonight. Again, he was only polling low single digits, six, seven percent. There wasn't an awful lot of support to be thrown around. But because he made his endorsement of Donald Trump, it signaled to those that were following behind him this is the kind of faction of the party that you need to be moving towards. Reggie, I know you've got a busy evening ahead of you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.